One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the Olympics, we're seeing women ski jumping for the first time ever. And here's a sport where lightness is so prized that eating disorders among male competitors has been a big problem. Lightness is so important that women, um, I wouldn't be surprised if the women can actually compete with the men in this event. And we'll see it at the Olympics for the first time. Fascinating. So we're now at the point where, you know, potentially at Sochi, uh, you could see uh, women surpassing men in that in that particular event. Some of the jump distances I've seen, the women are right in there with the men. And, and, and the women are only just now getting this sport on the world stage. I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast Show. I'm joined today by David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene. David, what is The Sports Gene about? Is there actually a sports gene? There absolutely are sports genes, uh, and not necessarily a single sports gene, but, but the book really traces sort of all that we've learned in the decades since the sequencing of the human genome about what genetics can tell us about athleticism. Uh, and, and also in many cases, what it can, things that were thought to be genetic that are actually uh, the result of practice and training. When you think about the landscape of competitive sports, one thing that's kind of neat is that it's a global landscape. And so you're drawing on all kinds of different human talent pools. When you're thinking about the Olympics, for example, it's incredible because you, know, you have all of these different cultures around athletic performance, all of these different body types. It seems kind of chaotic and crazy. Yeah, but, and, and to me, that's sort of one of the things that drew me to looking into it. Not only the differences in culture and, and, and representatives of different countries around the world, but, but like you said, those body types. To me, elite sports is sort of this the best maybe stage to examine kind of human biological diversity, right? So when, when we look, you know, when I think of looking forward to the next Summer Olympics in Rio, for example, and we have a Winter Olympics coming up here, in the Summer Olympics, you'll see a guy, a six foot four swimmer, right, who's walking into the stadium next to his countryman who runs the mile, who's five foot nine, and both those guys will be wearing the same size pants because of the different body types. That, that are conducive to those sports. And to me, that's, that's incredible and wonderful. And people would ask me if kind of getting into the science behind sports sort of took away some of the magic for me. Absolutely made it more interesting because I, I love looking at sort of the diversity of human body types in that light. When you think about human biological diversity, when you look at other creatures, for example, man's best friend, if you think about uh, canines, mm-hmm. you think about how obvious the, difference are, uh, the differences are between a St. Bernard and a Chihuahua. I mean, it's just, you know, the size is so different that it's actually kind of remarkable that they belong to the same species. But similarly, when you think about human beings, uh, if you think about some of the oldest human populations, uh, you know, kind of from the, the Rift Valley, I mean, mm-hmm. from the heart of Africa, when you look at the biological diversity within Africa itself, uh, and then if you're, I mean, you know, you're getting enormous, uh, an enormous range of different physical attributes there as well. Yeah, and in fact, sort of depending how you look at it, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, man's best friend because um, 
human human genetic diversity actually is often on par with differences between dog breeds too, and but you know a little more taboo kind of to talk about. But but as you said, the genetic diversity in Africa is like staggering. I mean, there are pygmy populations in Africa that have more uh, different versions of a particular gene than are held in the rest of the world combined. Right. So I guess this gets sort of to to the fallacy sometimes in sports where we talk about just like black athletes from Africa, right? Because the the athletes that come from uh, the coast of, of West Africa who, who dominate sprint events could not be more physiologically distinct from those in East Africa other than the fact that they both happen to have the dark skin that protects from equatorial sunlight. Yeah, it's fascinating. So in a sense, you could say that uh, the difference, uh, you know, kind of even within the African continent could be as great as the differences or almost as great as the differences you're seeing between, say, East Asia and uh, kind of, you know, and, and Northern Europe. Oh, yeah. So one, one black West African might have more genetic differences from his next door neighbor than you have from Jeremy Lin, for example. Mm-hmm. So when you're thinking about... Um, you know, professional sports, for example. I mean, you're thinking about enormous amounts of money changing hands. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about sports that are going through uh, kind of technological revolutions, yeah. uh, you know, in the sense that, uh, you know, let's say this position that is played this one way for this decade could be played an entirely different way because we find a new body type, yeah. right? So, I mean, tell me about, so when you think about, for example, soccer, yeah. you know, this is a sport that is a very, very global sport. Whereas when you think about, you know, a lot of the, Sports that are popular in the United States, let's say American football, you know, these things are, are more bound by our, you know, national borders. Uh, and so I wonder, does that mean that the quality of play in the more global sports is going to tend to be higher because you're drawing on this larger global talent pool? Yeah, in general, I think that's absolutely the case. And, and we've seen that in a number of sports that have sort of opened up. So let's, let's use an example of a sport that sort of was closed and opened up, which would be something like distance running, actually, which in the, in the mid-20th century was really restricted, dominated by England, a couple other countries competing, most of the world not competing, right? And then it, then it starts to open up to the rest of the world, and, and suddenly the improvements that you've seen in the sport, like, like take the marathon, all come from a population that was not competing before, right? So we think of, of Kenyans as being great marathoners, but really it's this one minority tribe in Kenya called the Kalenjin, population the size of Costa Rica, right? To put their achievement in perspective, 17 American men have run faster than 210 in the marathon in history, which is four minutes and 58 seconds per mile. 32 Kalenjin men did that last October alone, right? They have a very specific sort of body type and environment that's conducive to achievement in those sports. And it's a group that was not, just was not able to compete before, right? So if you actually look at world records, they are moving southward latitudinally and eastward longitudinally. A lot of the improvement seems to be coming from the uh, inclusion of populations that simply were not competing before. So when you discover a population that seems to have this enormous advantage, you'd think that, you know, if I'm a coach, if I'm an innovative thinker in a given sport, I'm going to want to find ways, how can I exploit that kind of remarkable speed? Now, when you're talking about marathons, when you're talking about ultra marathons, you're talking about uh, endurance, yep. whereas there are other, uh, you know, there are other skills uh, as relate to speed that are going to be, you know, more valuable you know, let's say explosive speed, mm-hmm. sprinting, mm-hmm. that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And presumably the Kalenjin aren't so great at that, right? No, in fact, because you, you kind of can't have, so there's a reason why we don't see the guy winning the 100 meters, Usain Bolt also competitive in the marathon, because there's a zero-sum game of the type of muscle fibers you have, right? So very coarsely speaking, there are two types, fast twitch and slow twitch. Fast twitch for sort of sprint and explosive uh, activities and slow twitch for more endurance activities. And you have a certain proportion 
And the more fast twitch you have, the more that crowds out the ability to have slow twitch. That's why we don't see those, you know, when we see decathletes who are basically explosive athletes, they're by far their worst event is when they have to run the 1500, which is basically like the mile, because you, you can't have that kind of physiology in the same body. To what extent is that something that one actively cultivates? So let's say that I am Kalenjin and I figure, you know what? You know, my parents were both ultra marathoners. They were great at that. That's for the birds. I want to be a sprinter, so from a very early age, I'm going to make a concerted effort to just be as explosive as possible. Now, you know, I assume that I'm going to be, be able to develop those different muscle fibers, right, over time in the course well, of my training? N- n- not entirely. You can change the muscle fibers somewhat. You can change some of their properties. You can make fast-twitch sprint muscle fibers more endurant, and you can make, uh, make slow-twitch muscle fibers stronger, but they don't completely flip. Right? The, the important thing about fast-twitch muscle fibers is they contract much more rapidly than slow-twitch muscle fibers. So when you need to mobilize for one explosive movement, you need to use those, and, and you, can't really, you can't really create them. You, you have to be born with a degree of them, and that's why, um, that's why slow kids, sadly, never make fast adults. That's just a fact. Right? Like, so one of the guys I talked to in the book is in charge of basically scouring South Africa for fast kids so we can draft them into rugby, and he, gives, he, he tells me you know, he's tested over 10,000 kids and he's never seen a slow boy become fast. Like, you can improve the ability to sustain speed, no doubt about it, but slow kids never make fast adults because you cannot make fast-twitch muscle fibers. Tell me about the frontiers of the science um, you know, when it comes to manipulating the body in ways that can allow... I mean, you know, is there anything that we can do meaningfully? I mean, are, are, you know, are there things in the laboratory somewhere that would allow us to uh, you know, make more aggressive interventions so that we can make slow kids fast kids? Oh, there, there are a lot. Of, well, there are a lot of things that are being worked on. I mean, one of the one of the things that's coming along the most quickly um, is is gene therapy techniques. If you're talking about sort of what's next on the frontier, so in the book I write about a gene called myostatin that causes it, it, it codes for a protein that tells muscle to stop growing. And when some people have a non-functional version of this gene, their muscle growth explodes, right? So there's a character I talk about in the book called Super Baby who's like born in Germany and the doctors are like, whoa, this kid's got like chiseled calves already, you know? Because he's like missing this protein that tells his muscles to stop growing. His mother is, was the first documented adult with a copy of that gene. She was a pro sprinter, right? Like the one person who had it. And now this gene therapy, drugs based on, this, on targeting this gene are in trials right now. Not, not to make people good athletes, to help people with muscular dystrophy stop losing muscle. That said, athletes who are always looking for technological ways to improve themselves are, are all over this. Like any time these scientists publish a paper, they get like deluged by athletes who like are volunteering for genetic manipulation. So, so one thing I find interesting is that, okay, so let's say um, you, know, you have a cultural group that has this shared genetic inheritance. That's the product of selection pressures that have been operating presumably for thousands of years. Um, now, one, one interesting issue here is that, you know, we all aspire to living in an egalitarian society, a society in which, you know, the belief is that everyone can, uh, can excel, uh, that that Kalenjin youth can be a sprinter rather than an ultra-marathoner, that that's possible. Uh, yet, you're dealing with this inheritance that's a product of thousands of years. Is there some way to kind of compress this kind of change. When you're thinking about these selection pressures uh, that are shaping our uh, genetic endowments, um, are there ways to kind of compress that process historically? What's been happening in the United States as a society in which you have people of West African origin, you have people of Asian origin, et cetera? I mean, you know, over a period of 50, 60 years, can you see kind of meaningful change? It's possible, I mean, in, in a number of different ways. So for one, we're kind of seeing the first generation in history where we know who the best female athletes are. 
right? So previously, women just didn't have the opportunities to really find out how good of athletes they were. Now they do. So we're actually seeing a lot more coupling of elite athletes, right? And, and that could be interesting, right? It's not, it's not like, it's, it's not intentional breeding. That, that's very rare. That, that sort of happened with Yao Ming, the basketball player. The Chinese Basketball Federation put several generations of his forebears together in an attempt to make him, and it worked pretty well. But that's like by far the exception to the rule, obviously. But we are seeing... Um, the mating, essentially, of elite athletes that we've never seen before. And I think it's interesting to see whether that will create a new generation. Also, Blake Griffin fathered a child with a celebrated American volleyball player. The, you know, and you have the Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf. There, there's actually a lot of these examples now. And, and not only that, but in, in the United States, with all the different uh, groups we have, there's some suggestion, theoretically, that, you know, something called hybrid vigor, where when you mix genes from very different populations, sometimes you introduce genes that help you sort of solve a biological issue in a new way and might, might produce sort of stronger offspring. So that, that could be really interesting because that happens in animals, right? If, if you're breeding dogs for height and you max out the height, instead of breeding more with tall dogs from the same breed, you go across the world and get some entirely different breed, even if it's shorter, mix it in because you might get some new genes that, that, that push the pool farther. And so I'm interested to see if we see some of that with, with kind of the increased intermarriage uh, in the world. Fascinating. Now, you mentioned Yao Ming and the Chinese Basketball Federation. And when you look at the history uh, of the Olympics, I mean, you know, obviously there's been a kind of geopolitical dimension to this. There's been a way in which different societies have sought to demonstrate the superiority yeah. uh, of their political ideological systems uh, through, um, you know, demonstrating uh, athletic achievement. Let's say you were an employee of the dictator mm-hmm. of some scrappy developing world country. Um, let's say it's, you know, Brazil or India. And, you know, there's a pattern in which affluent countries, uh, you know, are the ones that overperform. Australia is a country that athletically overperforms massively. massively. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a relatively small country, you know, um, yet they, they really punch massively above their weight. And then you've got these huge populous countries that don't. So let's say you're starting from scratch. They say, you know, David Epstein, you've written a brilliant book about uh, kind of natural genetic endowments as they relate to athletic performance. We want to put you in charge of scouring the country and kind of figure out what we, how would you go about that? What would you do? Oh, so if my goal was to sort of increase the metal hall, basically. Yeah, maximize athletic performance. And also we don't care how ruthless you are, David Epstein. You can go into someone's hut. You can take their tiny child. You can do as you will. Uh, Not that you would do that because you're a nice guy, but let's say that that's, you know, you're a Agenda. Okay, and let's say let's put like sort of doping aside because obviously that worked for East Germany and things right. like that. Right. Well, let's say let's say we put doping I, aside. Yeah. I would really start with the basics and what has already. And by been the way, shown this is about work. national pride, David. This is deadly serious. Okay. This is about avenging colonialism. This is about achieving greatness. So, okay, what do you do? You have a lot of pressure. You know, I, I think I think I would do what three of the last four countries to host the Summer Olympics have sort of already done. So the last four countries were 2000 was Australia, 2004 Greece. 2008 China, 2012 Great Britain, right? Three of those countries, when they were awarded the Olympics, started talent search programs where they ran around the country, did things as simple as measuring people, right? So one example, let's look at England, which just hosted the Olympics. They started a program where they would just go into schools and measure people. One of the people they happened to measure in a school was actually the teacher, a woman named Helen Glover. They said, boy, you have long legs and a short brachial index, which is the ratio of the forearm to the total arm. Have you ever tried rowing? Rowing? No, of course not. Four years later, she's the first gold medalist for the home team at their home Olympics and is now a national icon, right? There is so much that we now know. 
as sports have gotten more competitive, the body type, tall athletes have gotten taller, small athletes have gotten smaller, right? Elite female gymnasts have shrunk from five foot three to four nine on average in the last 30 years because it's easier to rotate in the air. Weird athletes' bodies have gotten weirder, so the forearms of water polo players have gotten longer in relation to their total arms, a more forceful throwing whip. So we now know all this stuff about the body types that work, and they're more different than they used to be in the past. So we can apply that really well, and that's what Australia did. That's why they won 10 times as many medals per capita as the United States did. China massively increased their medal haul. In the reporting of my book, I saw a video of Chinese selection for divers, it's children, rows of children going like this, and if their elbow joints don't meet above their head, out, 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 go to gymnastics. Because they say, well, you'll make a too, too big of a splash because you can't fold your arms in. And it worked really well. They, they didn't target track and field. They didn't target basketball, right? They looked at all these other sports where there's, there's sort of less global competition and looked at the physiology of what works in those sports and scoured the country for it. And that's simple, it's actually doable, and it works like crazy. Those three countries that did that massively increased their medal halls. Greece, which didn't, basically had the same at its home Olympics as it did in the previous games. Interesting, why did the Greeks choose not to pursue this course? You know, it's a good question. I think part of it is because they had such a big cost overrun in the other things they were dealing with in the Olympics. I think they might have sort of had their hands full. And one could argue that it also has to do with administrative capacity and the will of the the officials associated with this larger enterprise. Absolutely. I mean, Australia has the Australian Institute of Sport, which is a really world-class facility that was running this, right? UK athletics invested in this massively. China, I mean, they just, you know. It's fascinating. So when you list those four countries, you would think that when you were identifying three of them, you would identify, let's say, the three liberal democracies, uh, and then you would have the authoritarian outlier. But that's actually not what happened at all. You have China, an authoritarian country, two affluent liberal democracies falling in the same bucket. Yet, of course, I assume that there are some differences. So, for example, uh, you know, um, Helen Glover. Mm -hmm. I find her as an adult. She's already a teacher. Yep. She hasn't rowed right. before, and then I teach her how to row. Yep. Now, presumably, if you're using your jujitsu, you're in this developing world giant country, uh, you know, I'm assuming that you're going to want to get the kids at an earlier age. Yes, I, I would. And obviously, that brings up sort of ethical issues, but you said I don't really have to you worry about that. You don't have to that. worry about that. But, we but can even, talk about that later. Even this, so I, and, and watching this sort of Chinese diver selection, for example, you know, does it make me pause for a second? Yes, it does, because I'm not, I'm not used to that, right? Is, is tracking kids that early, and, and maybe that doesn't feel right to me, being an American. That said, ultimately, if they're right about the physiological components that you need, they may be saving some of those kids time and getting them into a sport where they might have a better experience. Let me say something very cynical then. So you could say that the Chinese, their attitude is, look, we're resource constrained. We can't be sentimental about this. Uh, You know, if our goal is to maximize the metal hall, uh, you know, we, we don't have to, you know, feeling bad about how Timmy feels about the fact that his joints are here rather than there. We can't afford that problem. Whereas, you know, perhaps you could say that societies that are more affluent or societies in which it's not the state subsidizing it, but it's parents who are optimistic subsidizing their kids, they can say... Oh well, you know, gosh, you should you should still keep at it. You can you can do. Is is that? Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe, but maybe I would. That's too I cynical. Would, I would argue, even from you know, from what China was doing, you're always resource limited, right? But even if they weren't, if you're saying, okay, is this kid is diving this kid's life? Fine. If the kid, if diving is just the one thing they're most passionate about, you know what? Continue to give it a try. But if it's not, if it's wanting to get to the highest level they possibly can, have a shot at the Olympics, compete with other people, you know, maximize what potential they have, then I'd say you know, you might really be doing that kid a favor. I think we're missing out on, a, on giving a lot of athletes the best experience they can because we're, they're all funneling to a small number of sports, and there's all these other sports they could be going to that if they do well, 
I, I find it hard to believe they won't start to love it. Well, that's an interesting conceptual question. So, you know, you've been a sports journalist for some time now, uh, among you know many other things that you cover, and I wonder when you're looking at elite athletes, do these people, uh, generalization coming, but do they strike you as people who are interested primarily in excelling, or do they strike you as people who, you know, just take great satisfaction in the particular sport that they're playing? Like, you know, when you're thinking about this kind of more broadly, uh, because, I mean, you know, one thesis is that, well, we're helping you by finding the sport in which you are going to, uh, you know, achieve your highest level, uh, you know, versus, well, maybe we have different proclivities and this is something that you're kind of culturally aligned with or whatever else. I think, I think more often it is excelling. It is. And actually, if you look at sort of sports psychology research about elite athletes, they will show pretty high um, ego-oriented motivation. So they, they want to be better than other people, but they'll show really high intrinsic motivation that they want to better themselves also. And, and I think in cases when you've seen athletes, the, what you said actually really reminds me of the case of Alberto Juan Terena, the only a Cuban runner, was the only man to win the 400 and 800 meters at the same Olympics, was trained to be a basketball player. Um, and there was this, this exchange where in, in 1971, I think it was, um, the Cuban basketball coach uh, came to him and said, Alberto, you know, we think you should be a runner because he would he they did like one training session with the national track team and he did surprisingly well and he said no no you know you know basketball is my life it's everything to me I can't be a runner and the coach says actually we're sorry like we've already decided as of tomorrow you're a runner he was in the Olympics the next year four years later he wins two gold medals now, his life has become track and field now he's heavily involved in the international Olympic committee and things like that so this was a guy who was telling them literally like no no my life is basketball and they said sorry you're going to track and it became his life. I mean, and, and he's done amazing things with it. And he's continued to stay involved in track and field to this day. So I think it was, I think they really helped him. And in retrospect, I'm sure he's quite grateful that they did that against his will at the time. David, what you're saying is frighteningly deep because there are lots of broad implications for this there, when you think about are. just the idea of having some external authority. That, just no, yeah, no. Well, fair enough, fair enough. But I mean, it's interesting, just the idea that, you know, in many aspects, many domains of life, you could, you know, David, you really, yeah. you really ought to be reporting about X. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And it wasn't put to him sensitively, right? But if it was, if, if someone had come to him and said like, you can continue to play basketball if you want, but just so you know, we know you have these traits that might get you on the national team in track where you're not going to make the national team in basketball. Does that sound interesting to you? Particularly people who are putting a lot of their eggs in this basket of athletic performance. I mean, there's got to be a way in which uh, when you devote the hours that you need to devote to be elite, and that's a whole separate question that you, you discuss in the book, um, but, you know, the stakes seem pretty high. I mean, you know, people sometimes suggest that one of the most celebrated American athletes of our era, LeBron James, is someone who actually really loved football, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, arguably loved football more than he loved basketball. And yet it became pretty clear early on that he was going to have to choose one or the other. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's gone on to become, you know, one of the greatest uh, right. professional basketball players in history. Uh, but, you know, I've got to say something about that seems kind of sad. You know, I mean, maybe he would have been a great wide receiver. You know, yeah, ma maybe he would have been. I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he still could be. And obviously he's sort of rewritten the way we think about basketball. But, but I mean, at this point, LeBron James could do whatever he wanted, right? If he wanted, to, I'm sure NFL teams would give him a tryout if he wanted it, right? But he's doing well enough. Well, right? well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about this idea of yeah, some of the sports that, uh, you know, you and I are familiar with as a kind of dynamic process, because this seems really interesting to me. So when you're looking at athletic achievement, uh, let's say in professional football, mm -hmm. um, you know, it does seem as though you know, every year you think, I mean, you know, I'm sure, you know, 10 years ago, you're thinking like, gosh, 
we are investing so many resources in this. How could we possibly get better at doing this particular thing? There is so much money at stake. And yet, actually, it seems that you know, coaches, trainers, et cetera, do manage to squeeze more out of people. And in fact, this actually raises a lot of questions about the danger associated with these sports. I mean, in a way, you know, guys are getting so fast, they're getting so big, they're getting so aggressive that it actually raises real questions about how safe these sports are, right? But, but I mean, tell me about that dynamic process and how people learn to use different traits, different physical traits and what have you. Well, in, 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 with respect to football specifically, so there are some traits that are, are accelerated kind of in the 80s. They're, they're now slowing down but still going with respect just to body types in football where you see the big guys are getting bigger still, linemen are getting bigger, and actually running backs and cornerbacks, even while the population at large has gotten taller because you know better nutrition, less childhood infection, people in general are getting taller about one centimeter per decade. Um, but that may not be continuing in the United States now. But um, cornerbacks in the NFL and running backs have actually gotten a little bit shorter uh, relative to the general population, partly because so much of their job is acceleration, right? They're not usually running full speed. They're starting and stopping as quickly as possible. And for that, being shorter is a huge advantage, actually. And, and your legs, if they're shorter, they have what's called a lower moment of inertia, less resistance to getting moving. And so we're seeing this hyper-specialization of bodies, um, even, even in football. Uh, but but also of a number of a number of other skills, you know. So so anyone who follows football has seen that the passing game has gotten incredible, right? It's sort of taken over. Um, running backs aren't as important anymore. And and I actually think technology has a huge amount to do with that. So we now know that one of the reasons Peyton Manning um, does what he does is because he sees the field in a different way than you or I do, right? He sees it like a grandmaster playing speed chess. He actually focuses on areas between players that are unifying to the relationship of what the players are doing so he can predict the future. And this is something that you have to encode with, this, encode with the speed of an unconscious process. Um, and, and the ability to review film of football very quickly in very systematic ways is like, is, 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 a huge advantage for quarterback studying. It's the same reason why we now have many more young chess prodigies, young chess masters, than we used to, because they have computer chess. And they can, it's like reviewing game film in football. They can see the scenarios over and over and, and over They can and over. play against a high-quality opponent way more often than you could have in the past Absolutely. because before you had the coordination problem, whereas now if you have a machine you can play with, uh, you know, that can play at a very high level, then you can accelerate that process. And it's far more common to have like a young chess master prodigy now than it used to be, and it's very tightly linked to the availability of computer chess. Well, one thing I wonder about is that when you think about these changes, so, okay, you know, you, inv- you invent a support, you know, you have these sports that were invented, let's say, in the late 19th, uh, early 20th century. You know, they were kind of gentleman sports. They were kind of lawn games, essentially. I mean, they were kind of very casual. Then money gets involved. Then the stakes become much higher. Then you have, you democratize the sport. Yeah. You have far more people playing it, et cetera. So, you know, you have these different incentives at work. Doesn't that make you think that it's important to start thinking about how you change the game to accommodate these changes? So, for example, some people say that, um, you know, with, uh, with regard to basketball, perhaps we should, uh, you know, make the court uh, bigger uh, because the bodies of the players are so much bigger now and that, create, that raises the risk of injury, et cetera. I mean, do you think that we are changing the rules quickly enough to accommodate the changes that we're seeing in body types and in hyper-specialization? I do wonder about that. I mean, I actually fairly commonly hear people say that they enjoy college basketball more than they do professional basketball because of the, the tempo, basically the pace. Whereas in professional basketball, you'll see, you know, I think 11% of the league is seven-footers now. Guys who are just sort of camped out in the lane, you throw the ball down to them, they try to get fouled or whatever. So it's slower. You know, and, and, and I, I do think uh, that if you, if you widen the court, if you, if you raise the hoop, you might 
you might bring some of those elements that people enjoy um, in college basketball to the professional game to speed it up. That said, there's so many purists who I think like any rule change is such a such a horrendous thing for them that that there'd be a lot of blowback. But the NFL changes rules all the time. They're sort of subtle, right? You can't push the receiver here or there. You can't hit him this way or that way. And those have opened up scoring in the game massively as the receivers have gotten much, much bigger, faster, and 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 the defense is less, you know, can't put their hands on them as much. I mean, that's contributed to this massive explosion of the passing game that we've seen now. And, you know, with, again, guys like Peyton Manning being able to sort of, like, dominate the league almost like single-handedly sometimes. And it's also interesting just the way that there are body types, there are people who would have flourished in the game in 1995 who would not now. When you're talking about these kind of perceptual advantages that some people have, yeah. uh, you know, it, it could also be that you know, it's, it's all the more a diamond in the rough. It's not about having a certain level of kind of strength and size. I mean, it's about these kind of other things that must be much harder to identify. So that, that leads us to a slightly different question regarding football. The size of the funnel. Yeah. Uh, so... You know, this is a country in which, uh, you know, you have large swaths of the country. Well, okay, first of all, people across the country are consuming football enthusiastically. But then when you're thinking about the swaths of the country that are generating football players, they don't necessarily map onto each other one-to-one. And now we've had a ton of concerns about the long-term impacts. Uh, You know, you're starting with peewee football, and then, you know, you're going, you know, kind of, let's say if you're, an elite athlete, if you're very successful, you're going through, you know, through much of your life, and you're just taking these hits constantly. Yeah. So there's a huge level of anxiety among American parents. And I wonder, because you know, football is as popular as ever, uh, if, if, and more popular than ever. It doesn't seem to um, you know, have become less popular because of concern about the kind of injuries and the brain injuries uh, that seem to be a consequence of the game. Yet, parents seem to be concerned. Yeah, you know, so 1.1 million high school boys play football every year, right? It's a massive, massive participation sport. And and we're now at the point where, even aside from concussions, I think it's pretty clear that the accumulation of subconcussive hits uh, is really, you know, maybe even more important, right? So, Tell me about subconcussive hits. So subconcussive hits are hits that don't, don't cause the symptoms associated with concussion, but they are a hit that you take to your brain, basically. So you don't even necessarily notice it. You kind of shake it off and like, I mean, okay, it, yeah. it, every play, you see linemen when they come yeah. together, right? They first sort of tap heads, right? This isn't like the, the Patriot Scud missile explosion, you know, hitting like that, but it's just sort of like, you know, baby rams sort of like playing around. But who are the people who are ending up getting their brains dissected? Most often it's linemen. And linemen almost never get concussions, but they get a huge number of these subconcussive blows, right? So now, in, in high school, there are actually researchers You're looking... making me very sad. <laughs> but anyway, it's, please continue. So, yeah. so there are researchers looking at kind of trying to develop a hit count, you know, some threshold of hit count, the way that, that baseball managers manage a pitcher with their pitch count, right? The question is, when does damage become irreversible? Because it's pretty clear now that a high school player, you know, if they're, if they're taking hits, if they're on the line they can't not be at least temporarily damaged, you know, which isn't so good because, like, they have to go to stoichiometry at 2.30 or whatever, like, even, yeah. even if there is no permanent damage. But where's the threshold where they've taken enough subconcussive hits where there's permanent damage? And that's, that's what we don't know, It's right? sad because some of these terrible stereotypes you have about athletes, you know, certainly at the secondary school level, I mean, some of it could be just a kind of byproduct of taking all of these subconcussive hits. It, 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 there's, there, the Purdue researchers did a great study where they showed that, that kids who were taking, like, 100 hits a week or more in pr- combination of practice and games, even low-grade hits, which is isn't that much if you include hitting practice several days a week. Um, they had to work harder to do like the same on cognitive tests 
uh, you know, when, when they were exposed to those, those guys were taking fewer hits. So they were temporarily impaired. They did come back to baseline after the season, but they were impaired during the school year. And so that's obviously not really a desirable thing. So what happens to the pipeline? What happens if you have a lot of parents who are thinking, you know, I, I prefer that my children uh, don't engage in this practice that's going to impair, potentially right. uh, impair their cognitive abilities. Right. I mean, that's what I, you have to wonder, right? You see parents who, who pay, I don't know what they pay for a car seat, right, to protect against the one in a million chance that they're, they'll get in a car accident and their kid will be hurt. What if you put them in a sport you say, well, your kid can't play without being at least temporarily damaged, right? And I've, I've seen some preliminary data and heard that some of the youth football participation has taken just, yeah. not really so much of a dip, but has not continued to accelerate the way it did in the past. And I'm really curious to see if we see that again, like the next two years if there is finally some effect on the pipeline um, you know, of, of parents' concern. And if, if so, that's going to be a big concern for the NFL. The NFL's never been more popular, right? It's like overshadowing every other sport, but the athletes have to come from somewhere, and I'm curious to see what happens. Well, and partly, you know, the reason, well, perhaps, I mean, there are many different theories as to what's going on, but one reason why it might be so popular is precisely... Um, the speed and the energy with which it's played. I mean, some of these the transformations, and, and when also just even the strategic innovations. Yeah. You know, because one thing is that, you know, on the one hand, okay, you have this hyper-specialization, you have different body types, et cetera. So that means that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, people are moving faster, they're, yeah. they're taking bigger gambles, they're taking yeah. bigger risks. But then that also means that you have different body types that when they collide, I mean, if everyone, if there weren't actually this big difference in body types, then maybe the dangers would be, uh, you know, more manageable. But when you have people who are kind of relatively light and quick and other people who are kind of, is that part of the danger as well? I the mean, fact that when the hits happen, they're actually uh, that much more consequential when you have this variety of body types? Right. I mean, everything has conspired sort of to make these collisions more violent, right? So wide receivers have gotten much, much bigger. You know, now it's common for them to be 6'4", 6'5". You know, and, and then you have cornerbacks who are lightning fast but might be 5'9", five, 5'10", five, and these guys hitting each other at full speed, right? Like, so it's one guy's helmet is going under another guy's chin, so this one guy's getting smacked in the forehead, the other guy's head is getting rocked back, you know, and they're going in either directions. So absolutely, I mean, you're seeing kinds of hits that you never saw before. If you look at older films of football, you see guys more grabbing each other in the rugby style and dragging them down. There are guys that, that, that could be great tacklers now without even having arms. Right? They're just like launching themselves missile style at, at guys. And maybe that's, that's what we'll see next. Maybe. <laughs> oh, well, so, you, so you talk about sub-concussive hits, but then also obviously concussions have been uh, you know, a big focus. Yep. And it seems that you know, one idea that you raise is that actually not everyone is going to be affected by a concussion in the same way. Tell us a little bit more about that. Right. So in the book I write about a gene called APOE. Uh, everyone has two copies of it, one from mom and one from dad. And there's a version of it called APOE4 that um, uh, w has been known since the early 90s to increase your risk of Alzheimer's. But the more it's been studied, the more it appears to sort of be involved in, in recovery from all manner of brain injury, right? So people who are in a car accident, if they have one of the APOE4 versions of that gene, they're more likely to die. If they survive, they're more likely to have more bleeding, bre bleeding and bruising in the brain, less likely to recover, less success with rehab, things like that. And, and now it also looks like from studies of football players and boxers that people with that gene version, it's about 20% of people, don't recover from concussions as well. They're more likely to have long-term damage. That gene is showing up very much overrepresented among the athletes who are having their their brains dissected, and you would have thought it would be underrepresented because if these people had concussions earlier in their career, they might have more trouble recovering from it. Uh, and actually the first brain that the Boston University researchers who have been leading this study of chronic traumatic encephalopathy uh, dissected, it was a guy with two copies of that gene. That's like only 2% of the population. Wow. That, that puts you so, while the first problem is getting hit in the head, 
for brain damage, right, and not any particular gene, it's clear that there are innate biological differences that make some people more likely to have permanent damage. So this seems like a very straightforward case. If you're dealing with um, a youngish kid uh, who is taking football seriously, potentially we want to see if this is something that could really elevate your risk of having profound brain injuries later in life. I think so. So most of the doctors I talked to actually said, no, 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 we can't, we can't do that. Like, we can't tell people. Because the, basically the sort of talking point of most of the medical community has been, well, you know, th- this also tells them about their Alzheimer's risk, and there's nothing they can do about it, really, that, that's proven anyway. And so why give them information if they can't change their DNA, right? But then some of the geneticists I talked to really argued against that, saying, well, okay, we give smokers information that their smoking is gonna increase their risk of a heart attack, but then they can change their smoking, they can stop, right? But you can't change your DNA. But you can not get hit in the head, like you can decide not to play football, you can change your environment. So to me, the idea that, that a parent wouldn't wanna know, you know, if, if you had information that could say, boy, your, your kid is at eight times increased risk of tearing a rotator cuff if they play pitcher, maybe they should play second base instead. Yeah. You can still decide what to do with that information. So the idea that it should be sort of hidden from people is, doesn't make total well, yeah, sense. It's interesting to me. because I think that it's fundamentally discomforting. It's in tension with some of the basic ideas that many of us embrace about our society, what it ought to look like, and, and the idea that, well, actually, the distribution of talent is, in fact, identical across groups, and it's all epiphenomena, it's all a you know, product of culture and what have you. And I think that that's part of what is so discomforting about some of the conclusions you reach. But I wanted to talk to you. You mentioned earlier on uh, female athletic performance, and, and that's something where, you know, since Title IX, I mean, kind of over the past, you know, 30, 40 years, you've seen a revolution as you've allowed women to play a wider array of sports, et cetera. And there was a time, uh, you know, as recently as the 1980s, 1990s, when it was believed that, um, you know, in many sports, uh, you know, running, for example, uh, women would start to exceed uh, men. But, but that's changed. That's, that seems to have stalled. So tell me a little bit about the differences in athletic performance between women and men. Yeah, so there, there, there was that period. It, again, and these were peer-reviewed scientific papers that predicted that women would run faster than men in basically every running event. And what they did was they these scientists plotted the progression of world records for men and women and then extrapolated into the future and saw that the rate of improvement of women was so much greater than that of men that they would, they would pass them. So I think 2156 was the projected date when women would beat men in the 100 meters. The problem was women were just sort of starting up. So they were at the beginning part of, of kind of the, pro- the progression curve. And also the 80s was this era of mega doping, which has even greater effects on female athletes than it does on male athletes, right? So like, if you go back and look at the f- women's record books, it's completely stuck in the 80s because it was so much easier to dope in a major way then. So it actually looks like women are getting a little slower now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's because they're practicing less. Um, and so the biological gap is actually opening a little bit as men are getting slightly better still. So it, it's about 11% performance gap in running sports from the 100 meters to the 10,000 meters between the best men and the best women, 11% stable. Some sports it's smaller. Distance swimming it's 6%. Um, having some extra body fat is not such a bad thing there. And then there's sports, you know, like, like in the Olympics we're seeing women ski jumping for the first time ever. And here's a sport where lightness is so prized that eating disorders among male competitors has been a big problem. Lightness is so important that women, um, I wouldn't be surprised if the women can actually compete with the men in this event. And we'll see it at the Olympics for the first time. Fascinating. So we're now at the point where, you know, potentially at Sochi, uh, you could see uh, women surpassing men in that, in that particular event. They get to start a little higher on the hill, so they have a little bit longer run-up, but, but some of the jump distances I've seen, the women are right in there with the men, and, and, and the women are only just now getting this sport on the world stage, so I'll be really curious to see. I wonder, um, when you talk about hyper-specialization in some of the most elite-level professional sports, can you envision a world in which 
you have certain discrete roles on a team, uh, you know, in a given sport, uh, you know, where you could have a kind of mixed gender uh, situation. I, I don't see why not. I mean, so it, it, most of our sports are, are oriented toward, uh, you know, power and explosiveness, things we watch. And, and the fact is, men have these huge host of advantages, right? Boys and girls up to about age nine, the athletic differences are almost nothing, right? So there's still pr- fairly big differences in jumping and throwing, but in running at that point, the nine-year-old age group records, like in the 400 meters, are like within a tenth of a second of each other for boys and girls. But by age 14, they just are in different universes, right, after, after both go through puberty. Um, so men have denser bones that support more muscle, uh, more muscle fibers per, per area, huge differences in upper body strength, more red blood cells, which are better for endurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, more narrow hips, which are better for basically everything um, in, in sports mostly. So uh, there are wide-ranging advantages for men. That said, women outperform men in tests of things like very fine motor skills consistently. So there are things where I think if a sport accentuated sort of different qualities, lightness, like in ski jump, maybe things that accentuate very fine motor skills, um, you could absolutely see that. And I don't think women should be separated if they, the reason they're separated is because in many sports, the best women can't compete with the best men. But if that weren't the case, I don't see any reason to separate them. Yeah, it's interesting. Also, it reflects the legacy of the particular sports that we play, or rather the particular sports that are dominant at a given time as, you know... um, you know, you certainly have new sports emerge from time to time, snowboarding, uh, various other extreme sports being an example of those that have, you know, kind of attracted broad audiences, et cetera. But, uh, you know, you, we are still dealing with a, a, a suite of sports that were invented in an era when female athletes were not necessarily yep. as much of a presence as they are now. So perhaps, perhaps, David, you can invent some new sport that will allow us to combine the talents well, uh, of all peoples. I, I have and been genders. thinking about that, and I, and I do think if you extended the distance of distance swimming, because there, so having some extra body fat isn't isn't so bad, and actually I think can actually help with your your body position in the water, your buoyancy. So I think if you extended the distance of distance swimming, you would find the point where men and women would basically um, even out. So even even though at the marathon, right, the, the best men in the world are 11% better than the best women, if you take a man and a woman who cross the New York City marathon finish line at the same time, not the elites, but just like a normal person, right? If you extend the race to 40 miles, the women will win. It will usually win. If you push it down to, you know, 10 miles, the, the man will always win. That's usually because the, the man has more power, but as, as you go farther, the women will tend to be smaller, and that's an advantage as the distance goes farther and farther and farther. At the very elite level, the body differences between the men and women are much less, and so mm-hmm. the men are still 11% ahead. But if you take the normal people crossing the line, as you extend the race, the women will actually do better. So. I like the idea of you and I collaborating on a new sport, kind of like basketball, okay. you know, something like that. But, uh, so, so you've perhaps heard of a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. I've heard of him. Yeah, maybe he, has, he may have you know, come across your radar. Now, he's a guy who's, who, who offered a thesis that many people find very attractive, or rather he's popularized a thesis. And the idea is that you know, anyone can become, I don't want to caricature his view, but anyone can become a super-duper expert at something by devoting 10,000 hours of practice uh, to kind of a, a given activity. And you have dashed all of our hopes and dreams by saying that that's not quite true, that that's someone misleading. Now, my first question to you is, do you enjoy dashing people's hopes and dreams? 
Yeah, it's kind of like what I like to do on Christmas Eve every year. Well, know, it so. makes sense. It, it fits the facts that we know about you. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. And, and I don't think they should be dashed. I think they should find where their talents best fit instead of just sort of picking the first thing that comes across and devoting 10,000 hours well, to tell it. Tell us a little bit about, how, you know, kind of your interrogation of the idea. So if it's not 10,000 hours, is there some other magic number or is it just not a magic number at all? No, there's no magic number. And I should say Malcolm Gladwell does sort of say, well, talent, talent does matter too, you know, but uh, there... The strict interpretation of this 10,000-hour rule that many others have taken is that 10,000 hours of practice in any, any discipline basically is um, both necessary and sufficient for elite performance, right? And everyone, like I go to conferences with scientists and sports scientists and ask who's heard of the 10,000-hour rule. It's everybody. And ask who's well read the primary, the paper that it actually comes from. And it's nobody, right? The, this, it comes from a study of a tiny group of violinists, 30 violinists, right, who are already admitted to the West Berlin Academy of Music, a world-famous music academy. So first of all, this would be like studying basketball skill by restricting your range of subjects to seven-footers in the NBA, noticing they'd all practiced a lot and saying only practice got them there, not practice plus right. being seven feet tall. Right? And then ten, the 10 best violinists in that study had practiced an average of 10,000 hours, not to expertise, just by age 20. But there was huge variance around that. And that's, that was left out of the original paper, the variance. So what I discuss in the book is that when there's actually a huge range, 10,000 is just an average. So if you look at the average number of hours to international master status in chess, it's 11,053. So you could say, oh, well, that's the 11,053 hour rule. But some people make it in 3,000. And some people have gone past 25,000 and still haven't made it. That's so the, the really creepy anything. part. Because you know, when you said, you know, the idea, the strong version of the thesis is that it's necessary and sufficient. Now, you could say, okay, maybe it's not sufficient, but it's necessary. But the really kind of alarming part of the thesis, in a way, is that some people could actually achieve mastery. You know, kind of, they just kind of like waltz on it. And you, you offer a number of examples of people who are just kind of like, hey, it turns out that I'm awesome at this. Yeah, I mean, I mean one that, people, that seems to have stuck with people from the book was where I do this tale of two high jumpers, yeah. where I talk about one guy, Stefan Holm, this Swedish high jumper who became obsessed with high jump from the age of six. The saddest story in the world. <laughs> put in, put in, but he did win the Olympic gold medal. And yeah. put, in, put in the, um, by his estimate, 20,000 hours of practice, right? And in the 2007 World Championships, he meets a guy named Donald Thomas, who had eight months of training, found out that he could jump on a lunchtime bet and wins the world championship there, right? And I asked Donald Thomas, like, what do you think about high jump? Oh, it's, I think it's kind of boring, right? The world champion said that. He just happened to be born with a really long Achilles tendon, right? Oh, man, Which what is a, a spring in the back what of the What a burn. Leg. And Stefan Holm must have been really... Now, but tell me a little bit about Stefan Holm's body as it relates to high jumping. Now, you know, was there... Did he have a relatively well-suited to it body or was it uh, just he, a product of will? wouldn't have thought. I mean, he's, he's quite short for a high jumper. He's, he's a normal height adult, but short for high jumpers, they tend to be quite tall. And he was sort of good when he started, but you never would have thought that he would have gotten to where he was. Sort of over 20 years, he improved like a centimeter every year. In turn, it, it looks like when he was examined that his training hardened the Achilles tendon in the back of his leg, which is basically a spring in the back of your leg that allows you to rocket yourself. And for air. it to be harder is a good thing? For it to be harder. So if you think of it like a rubber band, like the, the, the stiffer the rubber band is, yeah. the, the more ener elastic energy you can store in it. The stiffer or the longer. Right? So Stefan Holm, through training, had made a stiffer, stiffer rubber band in the back of his leg, whereas Donald Thomas was just born with a gigantic rubber band that could store a lot of uh, energy in it. So those guys basically got to the same place in a, in a very straightforward... This sort of shows the fallacy of the nature versus nurture. Right? Here's a very straightforward sport. Two guys performing at basically the same level. One through this, lunch, this path of like almost no nurture, and one through this path of extreme, extreme nurture. And they get to the same place by these very different paths. David, I think you've just taught me to give up. 
I no, think no. That I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, th- I'm just gonna put my pen down and I'm just gonna. Good, no, I, I'm what, being what people should yeah. do is put a little more time toward trial and error and finding where they can maximize <laughs> their talents instead of just sticking with the first part. I mean, I, I walked at high school football sidelines, right, and I see yeah. guys who don't even get in the game. They have a narrow hip breadth, long legs, and they're skinny. And I'm like, this kid could have a great experience in swimming or cross country or something. Instead, he's just sitting on the sideline. For that actually time. would be kind of a cool job to be an athletic consultant for the children of the affluent and indolent. Totally. You know, to just kind of like walk around and be like, hey, hey there, I like your hip size or something like that. That would be a little creepy, but I think that, uh, I, but very useful potentially. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a, a college 800 meter runner and, you know, after having done all these physiological tests and, and I did quite well. well that's you know, because you secretly have Kalingen ancestry. M- it must so, be yeah. something mom's not telling me, yeah. but, um, you know, and, and I did quite well with that, but um, having had all these physiological tests in the reporting of my book, I realized that I'm sort of very similar in many ways to short track speed skaters. Not only that, but Shawnee Davis, the gold medalist, was training like two miles from my house, so I could have had the environment too. And you know, that might have been cool if somebody had shuffled me to that. Maybe I would have gotten to that next level and been able to compete for an Olympic team. I don't know. David, I'm so glad you didn't become a speed skater because then <laughs> you wouldn't have been with us today. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks uh, for having me. 